welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction hello avril danchak here i'm talking about Module 00, if you're new to this, 009, which is TALC for Educators, Mentors and Clinical Supervisors. The TALC resources can be used independently by anyone who wants to learn, refine or improve their consultation skills. Educators, supervisors and mentors of all kinds can use these resources to help other people develop their skills as well. There are introductory chapters which cover things like the importance of listening and how to improve your own consultation skills, which introduce the background to the TARC resources. And these introductory chapters can all be found in Module 00. Consultation skills increase medical accuracy, they make for better patient and clinician satisfaction, and they create safer and more compassionate care. TARC resources are divided into modules that cover different aspects of the consultation, which in turn are mapped to the Calgary-Cambridge framework. Module 9 focuses on effective methods for teaching consultation skills, whereas modules 1 to 7 cover the core skills needed for effective consultations. Module 8 contains some inspirations and learning nuggets for when you only have a few minutes to spare, and modules 10 and onwards cover more advanced skills. Within each module, there's a series of linked chapters which all include a general introduction to the skill in question, where it fits into the consultation as a whole and why it's important. This is especially useful for any clinician in a training programme, and notes are given about how to apply those skills when consulting by telephone or on video. Each chapter also includes reliable and tried and tested methods for teaching skills, whether in one-to-one situations, such as a tutorial or supervision session, or in groups, for example, a study release course or learning programme. And there are comments, again, about using remote teaching methods. There are also comments on how to engage, motivate and energise participants, with advice on structuring training and suggestions for evaluating understanding and the use of skills. There are also resources including references for background reading, skills checklists for observers and educators to ensure that feedback is smart, and possible scenarios for skills practice. So how can educators teach consultation skills effectively? Well, there are three aspects to an educator's role and planning, which is often expressed as the educational triangle. This links the curriculum, which is what are we aiming to teach, in this case, the skills of the consultation, assessment, how much is known already by our participants, with the educational methods, how are we actually going to help people learn. Educator training often quite rightly concentrates on how to assess levels of achievement accurately and how to give effective feedback. However, if we want people to develop their skills, effective teaching methods play a big part. Educators can help their participants learn by developing skills in a variety of educational methods. This subject is covered in great detail in reference 14, engage, energise, enrich, evaluate. 
and the tout resources focus on reliable educational methods to teach effective consultation skills. In other words, much of this resource is about what happens after assessment and feedback have been completed when the educator needs to teach somebody how to do something. There is often an underlying assumption that insight will lead to improvement. For example, an educator may believe that if a learner realises that they are asking too many closed questions or that they can't remember what patients say, then once they've got that insight, better consulting strategies will naturally follow. All too often, this is not the case. In many masterclasses, educators assess consultations carefully and give appropriate feedback about what needs to be improved. Yet those same educators struggle to find a good method to teach the skills needed. However, if effective teaching methods are used after assessment and feedback, learners will quickly identify, understand, value, learn and perfect new skills. When carried out in groups, these methods assume a degree of facilitation skill in the educator and a familiarity with basic group educational methods. The approach outlined in the TALP module offers subtle attitudinal messages. Firstly, that educators can help learners buy into the idea that improving consultations is possible via practice and feedback. Secondly, that this means working on individual skills that then build together into effective communication. Thirdly, that the skills that need to be learned can be deliberately chosen by the clinician, often in discussion with their supervisor, and that these skills can be honed and improved with practice. Finally, the consultation is an important area of academic scrutiny and learning. It may take some learners quite a while to realise this, and educators can help them to develop their thinking and to realise that consultation skills don't just come out of the air, but which are based on a very solid academic research base. So, what about helping clinicians to develop their consultation skills? Many clinicians learning to consult actually have rather unhelpful study habits. They think everything can be learned online, although most of the academic material is usually only available in book form. And much of the online video material about consultation skills is positively unhelpful or demonstrates inadequate levels of skill. Some learners are resistant to using the most effective learning methods, such as skills rehearsals, and many are very unsystematic in their learning, relying on the idea of tips and hints rather than exploring in depth. Tried and tested teaching methods can help to overcome many obstacles to learning and show that consultations can move from the level of competence to excellence and in a post-qualification situation to a place of true expertise. When the skills of the consultation are fully developed, the consultation moves from being a transaction towards being a healing relationship. When the clinician forms an effective relationship, whether as part of a single consultation or part of a series of consultations over time, the interaction moves from being two-dimensional to being three-dimensional, more like a novel or a film. This enriches both parties and is also medically more effective. This is because more information is brought to bear on the clinical assessment and that means that explanations, planning and negotiating care are done more skillfully. Trust is developed so that effective follow-up and adherence to plans can take place. Improving consultation skills can be difficult for educators and clinicians alike. 
Most of the ideas I've outlined here will be familiar to many educators who are already teaching and learning to improve consultation skills, but it can still be difficult. Realistically, learning new skills is always challenging. When clinicians begin to work seriously on improving their skills, consultations may be a bit longer and some skills may feel clunky. However, when clinicians improve their skills so that they really pay attention and listen properly to the patient, less time is wasted in consultations in the end. Clinicians may also struggle with the attitudinal shift required to move from clinician-centred to patient-centred behaviours. New skills may fail to become routine, as clinicians default to less effective consultation styles when under stress, when the situation is complex, or perhaps when they feel they're no longer being observed. Why is it so hard to learn and embed new skills? The answer may partly lie in understanding the process of learning a new skill and the approach that learners taking to this. Learning a new skill is part of a cycle and educators need to understand this cycle as a necessary part of learning because this can help to speed up the acquisition of new skills and make it feel easier. There is a diagram which summarises the cycle of learning in the PDF that goes with this chapter. Learning begins with unconscious incompetence. This is when a clinician may not be aware that a skill even exists or that it's necessary. For example, a clinician may not really be aware that there is a skill which helps in getting consultations off to a good start and which is called agenda setting. In the next stage of the cycle, the clinician does realise that there's a new skill to be learned and this is called conscious incompetence because people also recognise that they do not yet have the skill which they now know about. The realisation about this can come from feedback from someone else or as a result of reading and becoming aware of new skills. The next stage is that of conscious competence which happens as the clinician starts to learn and practise new skills. The skill is there, but needs to be consciously thought about and is not yet routine, intuitive or natural. The processes of moving from conscious incompetence to conscious competence use up a lot of energy and can feel quite tiring, which is why people early on in training often find clinical work very exhausting. However, there's a further stage beyond this, which is of reflective competence. And this is when people know that they have a level of expertise but also learn about new skills and welcome the idea that they can become unconsciously competent again. So let's think about what needs to happen next. The next stage is unconscious competence and this happens when the new skill is fully embedded. It becomes so easy and intuitive that the skill is hardly noticed and may seem quite effortless to an outside observer. If we think about driving Experienced drivers hardly notice when they change gear because it has become an unconsciously competent thing to do whenever it's needed. With this continuous development of skills, we can move towards expertise and mastery, but continuing to develop always means going back to the stage of conscious incompetence again as new possibilities and new skills come into awareness. Some clinicians find this stage uncomfortable so they avoid finding out about the new skills they still need to develop. But the effective and self-aware clinician will always actually be keen to seek out new skills 
and will return to the stage of conscious incompetence repeatedly and will welcome that process. This is called reflective competence. I'd now like to talk about why it's important to think about failure. And I'd like to introduce the concept of FAIL, which stands for First Achievements in Learning or First Attempts in Learning. You can choose which one you prefer. No learning will occur without a first attempt. And early achievements are likely to be the first steps rather than perfect outcomes. Most clinicians, especially doctors, are used to succeeding in their training endeavours. They like passing their examinations. They get promoted. They like to feel on top of their work. But learning any new skill requires experiences which can be aversive to successful clinicians. First of all, a state of unconscious incompetence must be replaced by the painful realisation of conscious incompetence, realising that there's something you'd like to know how to do, but you don't know how to do it yet. Many educators actually relish this as a trigger to curiosity and new learning, but many people find the state of conscious incompetence unpleasant and try to avoid it. When learners make some attempts in learning and gradually move towards conscious competence, there is an improvement in their skills, but their skills can often feel clunky. They require a lot of mental effort and it's tiring. So inexperienced clinicians often find their work more exhausting than their older counterparts. Finally, when a skill is embedded into routine work, the resulting state of unconscious competence can only be a temporary state. To achieve true excellence and expertise means we have to re-enter the cycle and identify areas in which we can again become consciously incompetent. Many clinicians learn to consult well during their early clinical experiences via trial and error and sometimes painful reflection after the event when they say to themselves, hmm, that one didn't go so well. However, some clinicians do not go on to continuously develop their skills. Rather than benefiting from their years of experience, it feels as if they have the same year of experience many times over and they get better and better at making the same mistakes in their consultation skills but making those mistakes with increasing confidence. That's why we often say that practice makes permanent, but it's only feedback and reflection that make for perfection. Clinicians who have perfectionist traits have often been used to getting very high marks or even 100%, and they find that effort is repaid with good outcomes. The pathway to effective consulting can often be rockier than that. The result is that some perfectionist clinicians tend to have quite binary thinking. Either on the one hand, they think they're doing well, doing everything properly and getting 100%. On the other hand, if things are not perfect, they see themselves as frustrated, complete failures. This is not helpful for the long-term development of skills. Relationships with colleagues and patients are for the long haul, and being good enough along the way is better than being perfect at times, and burned out and fed up the rest of the time. Incremental improvement is acceptable and necessary. So saying, I may not be perfect, but I'm moving in the right direction. All clinicians can learn to tolerate a state of partial skill, of incomplete mastery. Scrutiny, feedback and reflection on consultations inevitably creates a sense of vulnerability and a sense that, as the clinician thinks internally, that they may not measure up. Care must be paid to acknowledge these difficult feelings in training situations, 
and also to create robust teaching environments in which vulnerability and failure are accepted and supported. Firm boundaries help, so that means feedback about behaviour but not criticism of the individual person. Objectively assessed skills help, and here the use of checklists can help. And sufficient time spent identifying the presence of skills as well as their absence can all help to encourage a good learning climate. In quality improvement activities in Japan, a phrase that's often used is, every defect is a treasure. This captures the idea that finding an area of incompetence is equivalent to finding treasure. Recognising the issue, the skill that needs to be developed, offers the promise of learning a new and helpful skill, which will make consultations easier and more effective. Talking through all these issues about learning can be a very important part of learning to consult better and of enabling clinicians to make the fullest use of the training opportunities available to them. Some clinicians have been trained in educational settings where it's not acceptable to ask questions, where it's not acceptable to identify or show weakness, or where it's not acceptable to describe your own areas that need improving, and it, or where it may be important to maintain an, area of, an air of always knowing what to do, especially in the presence of seniors. Some professional groups, for example nurses and social workers, may have the belief that they do not need to learn consultation skills because they are already empathic, caring and skilled. This may be true, but extra skills will always improve what goes on. Exploring these underlying attitudes and values and proposing different approaches to learning can be an essential precursor of effective learning and teaching in this important area of consultation skills education. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.